If you, uh, if you have a Bible, would you uh, please turn to Psalm uh, 51? Psalm 51, we're also going to turn to uh, James chapter 5 as well, because as Andy has said, the discipline that we're, we're looking at today uh, is, let me just get our slides up there, Matt, great. Our discipline we're going to be looking at today is, is confession. Now, for anyone who's visiting or, or new to this, uh, we're currently doing a series here at Windsor on both Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings called Unforced Rhythms, uh, which is all about the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith, which are those practices that have been kind of given to us and handed down to us for our, for our growth and for our discipleship. And right from the outset, we have, we have emphasized that the reason or the four reasons for doing this series, the four reasons for revisiting spiritual disciplines are these. We do them for godliness we do them in order to become more godly, more holy, more like Jesus. So as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. So that's why we do them. Second reason we do them is for intimacy. It's to nurture our heart relationship with our Father. We do them to guard our friendship with God. Uh, we do them because Jesus did them. And then fourthly, we do them because as a Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your hearts. And spiritual disciplines are one way, one key way of guarding our hearts. So this is the, these are the four reasons for this series and for, for spiritual disciplines. So far, we've looked at two. We've looked at two main ones anyway. Worship uh, a couple of Sunday nights ago. And then last Sunday morning, we thought about Sabbath. And then today, it's all about confession. Now, this one is slightly different uh, from many of the others. And, and some of you, as you look down that list, are already there in your thinking. So why is confession, as you look down that list on the screen, slightly different from the others? Go on, somebody be brave. Correct. Jesus didn't practice this particular spiritual discipline. He worshiped, he observed Sabbath, and there's many others, but this one he didn't do because he didn't need to. But that doesn't alter the importance of this discipline for us. In fact, if anything, it, it actually highlights our increased need for it. And more than that, it's because of Jesus that we can actually confess our sins and be forgiven. Because without Jesus, without the cross, without this bread and this wine that we are going to eat and drink together very shortly, without what these point towards and remind us of, then confession would be impossible. Confession would be a complete waste of time, a pointless exercise. And so I'll say more about that as, as we go along. The, the other thing that I need and want to say about this discipline right from the start is it's not just a private thing. It's not just a private thing. I mean, confession is personal. It's deeply personal, but it's also interpersonal. I wonder how you would feel, well, actually, I know exactly how you would feel. Uh, I wonder how you would feel or how you would react this morning if I asked you to turn to the person in front of you this time, not beside you, turn to the person in front of you and confess your sins, okay? Your specific sins. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do that. Not today, not today, anyway. But, but I am going to encourage you to consider doing it at some point. I'm going to encourage you to consider doing that at some point after today with another person. And again, I'll obviously say more about that as we go along. But for now, please stand with me for the public reading of God's word. Let's listen to this brilliant prayer 
of confession. Psalm 51, the words will be on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And I know my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. What a crazy thought. Even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O God, my sacrifice today is a broken spirit. It's a broken and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise that. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Grab a seat. David, uh, David who, who prayed this prayer, is described in Scripture, again, a wee bit of congregational participation. How is David described in Scripture as a man after what? A man after God's own heart. But he was a million miles from perfect. A million miles. I mean, he got it wrong at times, badly wrong at times, not just wrong. Many of us know the background to Psalm 51, the reason for this, but David had committed numerous sins, numerous sins. And so he needed to come before his God in confession. David needed to practice this discipline. And for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who belong to God like David, and I realize like most of the people in this room this morning, we as Christians, I still need to confess my sins. And I still need to do it on a regular basis because not because I need to become a Christian all over again and again and again, but I need to do it because I still sin. I still sin. And, and anyone who says or thinks differently is only fooling themselves, to quote the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, the, the verse that comes before that classic, if we confess our sins. But anyone who says, you know, I, I, I don't sin anymore, you're just fooling yourself. You see, salvation is an event, yes, but it's also a process. 
the death of Jesus on the cross that we're going to remember very shortly, it made ultimate forgiveness possible. Christ's sacrificial death was, yes, once and for all, or once for all, as Hebrews 7, 27 makes abundantly clear. And therefore, whenever we come to the cross for the first time, as many of us have, whenever we confess before God that we are sinners, that we need to be forgiven, that we need to be rescued, that we need a Savior, yes, whenever we come to the cross for the first time, we find forgiveness. And that damaged relationship, that damaged relationship that we were created for is repaired at the cross. We are reconciled to God at the cross. But we still sin. Christians still mess up. We still make wrong choices. We still think wrong thoughts. We still say wrong things. We still adopt wrong attitudes. And those things, those sins that that I have done and I have committed since I stood up here last week, they damage and they disrupt my relationship with God. They don't wreck it. They don't wreck it because of Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross. No, they don't wreck it. But they do disturb and distort it. And therefore, just like David in Psalm 51, I need to restore that relationship with God by coming before God with honesty and say, God, I've messed up this week. And in messing up, I've hurt you. And I've offended you and I've hurt others. And I do that. I keep coming back to restore that relationship to confess my sin via this discipline that we're thinking about this morning. We need to keep coming back to the cross. Yes, as we do every single week here at Windsor, and I love the fact that we do this every single week, but we don't just keep coming back to the cross to remember what Jesus has done for us Not just keep coming back to the cross to give thanks for his broken body and shed blood, but we need to keep coming back to the cross to examine ourselves and to confess where we've got it wrong in the past week, the past 24 hours, the past 24 minutes. I'm no longer, we're no longer slaves to sin, but it still damages our friendship with God. And unless we confess it, unless we practice this discipline, then it has the potential to keep creating dysfunction and distance. Which is why I love the fact that central to the Lord's prayer, or rather central to the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray on a regular basis as that classic line, forgive us our sins. Because Jesus knows, Jesus knew his followers would keep on sinning. And so they need to keep coming back and they need to sit and pray before their Father in heaven and say, God, forgive us our sins. We still mess up. And so if we're serious about godliness, if we're serious about holiness, if we're zealous about our relationship with God, then this is a discipline that that we will practice. This is a discipline that will, will be essential to us. Okay, so question then is, what is actually involved? How should or might we practice confession? What what does it look like? Well, what I want to do is begin with our personal confession of sin to God, and then we are going to move on to this rather delicate, difficult, uncomfortable, yet biblical idea of confessing our sins to one another. Richard Foster, in his uh, book, Celebration of Discipline, that I've referred to a number of times and we will continue to do so, uh, in his chapter on confession, he refers to this quote regarding what we do. And it says this, for a good confession, three things are necessary. 
an examination of conscience, sorrow, and a determination to avoid sin. And I, I think this is really helpful, and, and therefore what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to use that, and I'm going to attempt to break it down. So let's begin with an examination of conscience. Now, this, this, this is very different, like very, very different from the popular idea which says, well, let your conscience be your guide. No. That is not what this is about. That is an incredibly dangerous approach to this. I mean, even, even Scripture warns and reminds us that, that our conscience can be what? Somebody. Our conscience can be what? Seared through. It can lose all feeling. And if we get to a place where we let our conscience be our guide, if we come to a place where we are letting our conscience dictate, call the shots, we will be in all kinds of trouble. In true confession, biblical confession, we need to be proactive. We need to examine our conscience. It's not about letting our conscience be it. We need to examine our conscience. We're honestly, before God, we take a long, hard look at ourselves, and we allow, as one writer describes, our souls to come under the gaze of God. It's not about letting our conscience be our guide. This is about us being proactive and saying, God, take a look. Take a a look. In the words of the delirious song that I've referred to before, investigate my life, God. Make me clean. Shine upon the darkest places or place in me. To you, my life's an open book. So we're actually saying to God, God, you please turn the page and take a look. You do the examining. And I don't know about you, but, but I'm often aware of the things I have done and said that are wrong. I do. I, I know I know what I've done wrong this week. But I also need God's help to ensure that I don't overlook those sins that I've become blind to, that I've become used to, that I've become blasé about. And so I need to say, God. You know, it's, it's like David in Psalm 139. We're going to come back to this tonight where it's David before God in Psalm 139 says, God, I want you to search me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. I mean, that's a brave prayer. It's a bold prayer. But that is the prayer of someone who takes their sin seriously and takes their relationship with God seriously. You see, confession begins with self-examination where we invite God to reveal what are the issues in my life? What are the habits in my life? What are the practices in my life? What are the words I've spoken this week? What are the thoughts I've had this week? What are the actions I've done this week that are need to be forgiven, that need healed? where we expose the specific and we deal with the definite. This goes way beyond general confession where we pray, Father, forgive me for whatever I have done or said or thought wrong this week. And I'm not dismissing that approach, but at times we need to be precise. We need to identify. We need to name the particular sin. And there's ways to do that. There's, there's kind of tools to use. I mean, Martin Luther, apparently, when it, when, it, when it came to this whole thing of self-examination before God and examining his conscience before God, what did he use? He used the Ten Commandments as a basis for self-examination in order to ensure that he was explicit in identifying and exposing sin in his life. And so he just worked his way down through the Ten Commandments, and he just thought, God, I want you to reveal to me where I have put other gods in your place, where I have got idols in my life where I have laid, and so on. And so Luther wrote, there is no better mirror in which to see your need 
than the Ten Commandments. So that, that was what he used. Others used the so-called seven deadly sins, pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth, as a way to examine their conscience and sit before God and say, God, I carry, and I, this, I mean, I've confessed this before, God, I carry pride like a disease. I'm envious. I've looked lustfully. It's where we use these things and sit before God and examine our conscience, be honest before God. But whatever we use or however we approach this, the point is this, confession involves and requires scrutiny before a holy God. And in a few moments, we are gonna take communion. And as we approach this table, we are urged to, as I've said, we're urged to scrutinize our lives. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, let us examine ourselves before we eat and drink. Confession begins with an honest, genuine examine of conscience. And if it's been a while since you've done that, please take time to do that. Discipline yourself to do that today this week, because honesty leads to confession, confession leads to change. But that examination should then be followed up with or lead to the second stage, which is sorrow, to a deeper sense of the sinfulness of sin and regret at having offended the heart of the Father. This is the difficult bit I find sometimes, because I do get used to this stuff at times. I I do become blasé. I don't sense the seriousness of sin in my life at times. I don't have that sorrow. I don't have that regret at having offended the heart of the Father. And I know my sin and our sin obviously hurts and damages other people whenever we are angry and whenever we are harsh and whenever we are rude and whenever we are proud and whenever we are hungry. Yes, other people are hurt and are damaged. But at a deeper level, every time we sin, it is ultimately God who is offended and wrong. And Psalm 51 makes this abundantly clear. clear. I mean, David had, as you know, as we've said, he had done some horrendous things to other people. He had committed adultery. He had wrecked families. He had sanctioned murder. But whenever he confesses his sin to God, what does he say? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yeah, David had sinned against a woman. David had sinned against women. David had sinned against man. David had sinned against a nation. But he clearly understood as he prayed this prayer that his primary offense was against God. And that is what broke his heart. And that is what led him to this classic prayer of confession. And our sin needs to disturb us. It needs to drive us to our knees in sorrow and repentance. And again, if it has been a while since we've found ourselves on our knees before God in sorrow and repentance because of the sin in our lives, then please grab hold of this spiritual discipline afresh this morning. And then finally, in this section, third stage is this determination to avoid sin. In other words, a commitment or a recommitment to godliness. It's about a yearning for holy living. And so in confession, we realign our surrender to God and to God's ways. We express a determination not to sin again, not to behave in that way again, not to make that choice next time round. 
Regular confession, daily confession, gives us a great context for renewing and refreshing our resolve to avoid sin and live for God. So there are three vital elements in practicing this discipline. And let's be clear, every time we do this, each time we confess, what are we doing? We're opening ourselves up to the mending of the cross. And so in confession, we find ourselves back at the cross and we find forgiveness and we find the restoration of our salvation. And I love the joy of our salvation, which is what David prays for. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And if you've lost the joy of your salvation this morning, potentially because of unconfessed sin in your life, then please, please practice this discipline afresh. But let's turn to the other aspect, the need to confess our sins to one another, which is part of this discipline. It's the unnerving part. In James 5, 16, and we know, we know this verse, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And some of you might remember us looking at this as part of our one another series back in 2013. But the question I want to ask this morning is, do we do this? Like, I mean, ever. When was the last time you confessed your sin to someone else? Like, be honest about that this morning. When was the last time you confessed your sin to someone else? Now, that verse, and there's always a danger, and I know what some of you are thinking, there's always a danger, and it's own ways to lift the verse out of its context. And this verse comes as part of a section where James is talking about prayer. And he refers to different situations that we may find ourselves in. And so at the start of this little section, he says, are some of you in trouble? Are some of you happy? Are some of you ill? And if you're ill, then he talks about calling the elders round to pray for you if you're ill. But as part of that overall section, as he's been talking about prayer, he's been talking about happiness and illness and trouble, he says this, he encourages Christians, therefore, as a result of just the world we live in and who you are and the things you face, therefore, part of what it means to be in Christian community is confess your sins to one another. So that you may be healed, yes, physically healed it may be, but also it's much more than that. There's a bit of wholeness and healing here. And so mutual confession, and again, people like Luther believe this was so important. Mutual confession is Biblical. And the question is, how, how do you react to that idea this morning? Because personal confession, in some way, that's easy. Interpersonal confession, that's hard. And we need to be clear about a couple of things as we tease this out a bit more. Yes, there's one mediator between God and human beings, and that mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, is Jesus Christ. A mediator is one who intervenes between two parties in order to restore peace and friendship. And at the cross, Jesus intervened between us and a holy God to bring about reconciliation and the restoration of our relationship with God. And only Jesus can do that. End of. One mediator between human beings and God. Secondly, our personal forgiveness does not depend on our confessing our sins to one another, Okay. 1 John 2, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, irrespective 
if we confess them to one another or not. I know that. But having said that and established that and reaffirmed that, let's not then avoid the need to confess our sins to one another altogether. Now, I know some of us might believe, we might think that certain traditions have got this skewed, they've overemphasized or got the whole confession of sin to others out of sync or out of perspective. And maybe they have. But you could also argue that what we have done is thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We have effectively jettisoned any need, any calling, any command to ever confess our sins to anyone else. So my question this morning, when was the last time you confessed your sin to someone else? And one of the problems with this, apart from the fact that it ignores Scripture, is that we tend then to keep quiet about our struggles. And we buy into this kind of privacy about sin that keeps everything and everyone else in the dark. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. If that, as long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has to be brought into the light. So where do we turn? Who do we confess our sins to? Clearly it isn't about telling everybody everything. That would be really unhelpful. Really unnecessary. And it's not about turning around to the person in front of you who you may know or may not know and sharing your deepest, darkest secrets. There will not be, let me state this category, there will not be a confess your sins to one another slot in any service at Windsor, okay? So relax about that. But I do think, I do think it is worth identifying one or two others that you can engage with at this kind of level. But who? Who? <laughs> Richard Foster recommends that the kind of people we're looking for are those here. Here's, here's what he says those who are spiritually mature, those with spiritual maturity, wisdom, compassion, good common sense the ability to keep a confidence and a wholesome sense of humor. They could be hard to find. Do you know any of those kind of people? Those with spiritual maturity, wisdom, compassion, good common sense, the ability to keep a confidence and a wholesome sense of humor. You know, we need to be wise about this. I know that. We so need to be wise about this. We need to be careful with this. We, so, we need to be selective but the critical thing is we need to do it. And let me give you two more reasons why we need to do it. One I've kind of touched on, and it, because it encourages accountability. By confessing our sin to one another, we build a level of accountability into our lives that can be protective and can be empowering. And secondly, confessing our sin to another can often help us experience God's forgiveness in a more tangible way. I've already made the point that only God in Christ forgives. Absolutely. But sometimes the process of confessing your sin to another person consolidates and affirms God's forgiveness. If you go back to Psalm 51, many of you will know that David, in a sense, didn't really come to his, his senses by himself, did he? Who brought him to that place? Nathan. He needed someone else 
who walked alongside, who drew alongside, who spoke into his life, and who encouraged David to confess his sin before God and before him. You see, there is or can be something potentially liberating about confessing our sin to another Christian, but by bringing our sin into the light, someone's put it like this, God has given us our brothers and sisters to make God's presence and forgiveness real to us. It's through the voice of our brothers and sisters that the word of forgiveness is heard and takes root in our lives. I know and I fully appreciate that, that, that this idea, that this prospect, that this practice, it does unnerve us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? But it could save some of us. As John Piper says, Honesty and purity of heart involve continual admission and confession of sin to appropriate people in our lives. Who are those appropriate people in your life? If we don't have them, if we don't have anyone that we're confessing our sin to, we need to find them. There is no stronger sin than sin that remains hidden. But whenever we practice the spiritual discipline of confession, our sin is brought out into the open. Primarily, that openness must be before God. Our greatest need is to confess our sins before God because it is God who forgives. And so remember those three vital elements, an examination of conscience, sorrow, a determination to avoid sin. But in addition to private and personal confession, that openness can and should be encouraged with and before another, an appropriate other. The old Scottish proverb says, Confession is good for the soul. That is not how it reads in the original. There's a missing word there. Does anyone know what the missing word there is? Because that's the, that's, the, that's the way most of us know it, isn't it? Confession is good for the soul. Does anyone know what the missing word is there? Open. Confession is good for the soul. That's what makes this hard but that's what makes this necessary. And that's what makes confession a discipline. You've got to choose to do it. May God help us practice confession.